talk about what was shared last Sunday so that you all know where we're at in the story. And last week we talked about that the Father, God, our Father, according to James, the book of James, that there is no shadow of turning with God. That God is always loving, gracious, merciful, and there is no darkness in Him. You can't make Him think a bad thought toward you. You can't make Him hate. You can't make Him be angry and vengeful. You can do nothing like that because God is love embodied. There is no turning away from that nature of God. However, the way we have experienced love in this world has been that people sometimes lose their patience. They get tired. They don't want to do certain things. But, those are called shadows. Someone may love you. Your parents love you. Your spouse, your friends love you. But there's going to be a time when they aren't perfectly loving toward you. It just happens. Those are shadows. And so we learn that love is not always bright and welcoming and patient and keeping no records of wrong like 1 Corinthians 13 says. Because of that, we then learn that love has shadows. You can't expect it to be unconditional all the time. What we saw last week also is that the prodigal son, when he comes back to his father, prepares himself to be a servant. His older brother, who's working the field, when he hears that his brother has come home, basically rejects him as a brother and talks to his father like it's his son, but not his own brother. The prodigal son thinks like the older brother. He just experiences it differently. And last week we talked about that. Sometimes in life, we put ourselves into the shadow living and we don't know how to get out of it. And this week, I want to share with you, there is a way. One of the things that we have in our lives, that each person has, is a self-concept. What we think of ourselves. Who we think we are. It's your perception of who you are, and it affects your relationships, your functional abilities, and your health. It's unique to the individual, so your self-concept is yours. Nobody else can have your self-concept. Second thing is it can be positive or it can be negative. When you look in the mirror, do you like the person or do you not? It can be positive and negative on different days. Third thing about self-concept is it has emotional, intellectual, and functional dimensions. The fourth thing is it changes with the environmental context. It changes over time. That's the fifth aspect of it. And the sixth aspect is it has a powerful influence on your life. There are a lot of different components to that uh, that I just shared with you in characteristics. But breaking it down, the main self-concept components are identity, body image, self-esteem, and role performance. Those four. How you see yourself, how you're aware of yourself. And I'm going to break those down briefly. These are very, very important to understand 
who you are and how you see yourself when you're looking at a God who does not see you that way. God does not see you like you see you. You see the flaws and mistakes. You see the pain and the problems and the pressures and the struggles. God sees you differently. Learning to see ourselves as God does is very difficult because we've learned shadows. Now those four components, the first one I said was identity or personal identity. It's a sense of what sets you apart from somebody else. This is me. That's you. That's the identity. But it may include your name, your gender, your ethnicity, your family status, your occupation, and the roles you play in this world. Your personal identity develops during childhood from self-reflection and feedback from other people. There was a young girl in our school who had turned in feet. And people picked on her for that. And for years, even after high school she still felt like nobody liked her because of the way they treated her in school. Her family, uh, your family, your peer group, and your community also form your personal identity. What family you're from is different than the family somebody else was from. And the oldest in that family is different than the youngest, an only child versus a multiple children. All those things make you understand who you are in this world And nobody's is exactly the same as yours. So your personal identity sets you apart from others. The second thing I mentioned was body image. That affects a lot of us. Brutal in school. (laughs) Picking on people by the way they look or don't look, what they have, what they don't have, how they appear, whether too short, too too tall, uh, too skinny, too fat. They don't ever pick on someone just right. Hey, you look just right. What's wrong with you? They don't do that. They always were um, pretty much brutal when I was growing up. And uh, one of the kids uh, in my class, uh, they constantly threw him in the trash can every day. It took a long time for him to want to come to class reunions, I promise you that. But he finally did, and he said, I don't think you'll throw me in the trash can anymore, so I came. But that had left scars on him for 15 years after school. But the body image is uh, the attitude you have about your own physical attributes and characteristics, your appearance and your performance and the changes that your body has over time. The way you perceive your body is affected by your personal identity and also by your self-esteem. Now, I've got to tell you this, and this is why this is important for this today. Two people can look exactly the same way physically, and one person can be critical and the other person positive about it. It's true, because we all look at things differently. And as I said, that's affected by your personal identity, which I mentioned first, and your body image is also affected by self-esteem. Now, this is important because when somebody looks in the mirror, and you look in the mirror and say, well, you know, I don't like the way that looks. That's too big. That's too little. I need to change that. Oh, all these wrinkles. What do I do about that? I don't like the hair. We all find stuff wrong. Self-esteem basically gives us a value and an identity and an assessment of whether or not what we see of ourselves physically is acceptable based on our image of who we are as a person. It's a judgment of personal performance compared with what we think we should be. A self-ideal or an ideal self. This is based on personal standards and self-expectations. 
nobody has the expectations for you that you do. And nobody else has your standards for you. Only you do. So you might walk into a house where someone has different standards than you, and you might go, oh, this is not my standards. Well, it could be good, it could be bad. You know, it depends on what you're looking at and how you see yourself. It's associated, self-esteem is associated with what's called the locus of control. Now, it's, it's a big phrase, I'm going to break that down. And what it means is, the locus of control is what part of you decides what is true for you. There are some people who have an internal locus of control. And they perceive that they affect their own destiny. So in other words, what guides their lives. My choice is what I believe, what I think, what I do. That affects my destiny. People who have an external one believe that other people affect their destiny. And I'm just a victim of circumstance. We all fall in somewhere on those ranges. And sometimes we'll slip back and forth. Well, you know, the world's just going crazy and I can't do anything about it. Or we say, I have a choice in this matter. I can choose how to respond to this. And the world's not going to make me do a thing. There's different ways to think about it, isn't there? But that self-esteem will tell you whether you believe you have some control in this world or the world's controlling you. The last one I mentioned was role performance. Hmm. This is the one I think will help us the most today. It's a set of expected behaviors. It's determined by family cultural and social norms or social expectations. People express their identity of who they think they are through the roles they play in this world. So whatever you think your role is, a mother, a teacher, a professor, a farmer, a chicken raiser, whatever you think you are, that is based on your identity and the role you play. Some of us wear multiple hats. Some of us have so many hats, we don't have enough hat rack space for them all. <laughs> but truly, our self-concept, though, and this is what we're talking about, develops throughout our life. And thank the Lord for that. Because if I thought about myself the way I thought about myself when I was five, I wouldn't want to be up here right now. You wouldn't want me up here right now either. My self-concept is different. The major goal when you have an altered self-concept is to gain a sense of well-being and to facilitate, facilitate the ability to grow again. If you have a poor perception of yourself, you're probably not growing. Or you feel like something's wrong with you. And since something's wrong with you, you're trying to fix it. Some people think there's something wrong with the world, therefore there's something wrong with me, and I can't fix that. Mm -hmm. Truly, we say it like this. I'm a sinner born into the world of sin. I guess I'll just go ahead and sin. Can't stop it anyway. I've heard that. Mm -hmm. A lot of people say that. But our story today has two brothers and a father who have this self-concept that we don't often look at at this story to see what their responses are to the situations in their life and why they're doing what they're doing. We can kind of picture it from our society why the younger brother wanted to sow his wild oats. Ain't nobody going to tell me what to do. He didn't hate his father. He didn't mean to dissociate from his father because he didn't like his father. He wanted to go be himself. 
find himself, I've heard people say. I just got to go find myself. I've heard people say, I have to redefine myself. And I'll say, well, good luck with that, because it's always changing. And it is. We grow. We revolve as a person. But the older brother, from the story, we see that he was somebody who's under obedience. And he thought that to be blessed, you had to earn it, to work for it. But he never asked his father for anything. In his world, grace doesn't work. Work works. Now you see it in his response to his father when his father says, we need to make merry. And the brother says, oh no, not me. You don't understand. I mean, he may have had a pouty lip going, I don't know how he did that. But he said, I've worked for you all these years. Never transgress anything you ask me. I've honored you in everything. And you never gave me a young goat. A goat. One of the lower animals. That I might make merry with my friends. I worked and you've never given me anything. Doesn't work, earn it. Isn't that how our society is set up? You work, you get a paycheck. If you don't work, you kind of get hungry. How it's supposed to be, right? That's how our world is set up. Rewards are earned, not given to the undeserving. There are people, even here today, that believe this is still true, that nobody who is undeserving needs a thing. And it looks like to this brother that the younger son, when he comes home, has done something twice to his own dad. First of all, when he asked for his share of the inheritance and then wasted it selfishly in most, I guess you want to say, pretty sinful ways. And the son comes back and the father puts a robe on him, a ring on his finger, makes party for him, and he says, he's doing it again. He's taking advantage of you, Dad. He's taking advantage of you. That's how we feel in sibling rivalry, isn't it? And the whole concept is, I'm not getting, so you shouldn't. And when you do something wrong, you better not get it before I get it. That's our concept of what's right and wrong and just and fair by the way families are set up. The son has shamed his father. And the father throws a party when he comes back. And he looks at dad, his older brother looks at his dad and says, Your son is taking advantage of your kindness. He knows you love him, and so he is going to let you love him and not hold him responsible for his stupid behavior. Oh, I've heard these comments from people before in church and outside. The way we look at things, isn't it? He's done it again, Dad. He's not my brother. My brother wouldn't do that. My brother would work for the blessings, not waste the blessings. I remember saying that to a few people. You're wasting blessings God's giving you. When he tells his father that, we don't know if his father's response touches his son's heart. But there's a couple things in this story you've got to hear. When the father sees the son at a distance coming, it says the father has compassion. 
Compassion. Now, we miss the terminology in that word, but the Greek word is splugnidzo. The way the Father had it, it was a little longer form, but it means the same thing as the root word. Splagnizomai. Splagnizomai, excuse me. And what it means is, inside him, deeply, his father was moved by love. Mm -hmm. That what he felt was love for his son. He didn't experience anger, bitterness. He had no record of wrong in his head. And so he ran and greeted him and greeted him like he loved him. Not like he had to earn the favor, like he had to be blessed. He did it out of love. Hmm. Now here's a question I have for you. Maybe, maybe, um, maybe we really don't understand this story because there's so many components to it. But there's one thing I have to ask, and this is one thing, if you haven't settled this in your heart, you're going to be really critical of other people. And that's this. How do you know when somebody is found? How do you know when that person has a genuine turn and change of heart? How do you know? The brother that came back, all he did was said, I'm not worthy to be your son. I'm a sinner. I don't belong in your family. Make me a servant. That's all he said. He didn't show forth, you know, I'm going to work for this. I'm going to please you in what I do. He didn't even ask to be a part of the family. He just asked to be a servant. So how do we know? How does the Father know that the boy is found? <laughs> if you're asking me, it depends on who's looking for him. Amen. Right? Mm -hmm. John the Baptist said, if you really belong to God, do double works of repentance. You know, stop cheating people. Start living a different life. Being kind and gracious. <laughs> how do you know when someone else is found? You don't. You really don't. And God is the one who does the finding. But the Scripture says that the youngest son came to himself. Verse 17. The youngest son came to himself and said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare and I perish with hunger? My father's servants can eat, and I'm starving. And now this phrase, came to himself, isn't like, well, I'm going to go meet myself. I'm going to have a coming to Jesus meeting. But rather, he understood where he put himself by his choices. That as a son, he really had a father that loved him. And he believed that he ruined it. The truth is, he did. There was nothing he could do to get it back. Nothing. But when he came to himself, he had this awakening. I call it a moment of clarity. He said, I'm going to go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned, let me be a servant. And that's better than what I got. But listen, there are other people who had farms and ranches around his father that he could have gone to. Friends of the family. 
But He said, I'm going to go to My Father. I'm not going anywhere else because I know how He treats His servants and I'm not being treated like a servant in this place as I live like one. So I'll be a servant in His house. He began to have some clarity about His Father, not Himself. Do you see the difference? He didn't say He was a better person. He just said, My Father is the better person. And I'm going to trust Him. I would think maybe He had a rock bottom moment there. I don't know if it was the defining moment in His life, but I do believe it was setting Him on the right direction. Because He went toward home. Let me ask you something. Does repentance make everything okay? Father, I've sinned against You. I'm no longer worthy. I've sinned against heaven. I'm no longer worthy. Just put me as a worker. Do you think that repentance was enough? Does it make everything okay? In the Scriptures we read, no, repentance makes nothing okay. It's the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ that makes it okay. That's what sets it right, is the act of Jesus Christ. Our repentance says, I can't do this, but if you can through Jesus, I'm willing to let you. Because i got no other option, i got no other hope, I can't get back. I'd rather be a servant in your house than a servant to this world. And if you're going to let me be a servant, thank you. It's enough. It's enough to be a servant in the house of God. He comes home. And this is the part of the story where your self-concept really begins to play into this, I think. He comes home, his father falls on his neck, kissing him and loving on him. And the son says, I'm not worthy of this, Dad. I sinned against you. I sinned against heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The dad looks at him and says, your sonship is based on you. It's based on me. I gave birth to you. I made you. I'm your parent. You're the son because of birth. Not because of what you do or don't do. You belong to me regardless of how you act. And even if your hard-headed brother doesn't want you to be a brother, you're still his brother. He doesn't have to acknowledge it. But I have no shadow of turning. I'm not afraid to love you. As a matter of fact, that's all I'm going to do. Because that's what you need as a son of the Father. As a daughter of the Father is to be loved like that. So how do you respond if you were that son? And he throws the best robe out of the whole collection. Gets ready to throw a feast for you. Celebrating that you're home. And then putting on a signet ring. Signet ring means that you have authority the same as the Father in His Father's business. He makes Him one with Himself. How, what are you going to do? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I knew you'd do it. Is that your response? Is that what your self-concept says? Yeah, I was worthy of this after all. He's my dad. I'm his son. You know, Yeah, bring me in, Dad. Make me one with you. I deserve it. 
There's nothing he did that deserved it. There was nothing. The son was correct. There was nothing that he did. He was unworthy to be called his son. It's true. But whether or not we base our value to God on who we are tells us a lot more about us than God. If you believe God doesn't want you or can't use you or you're too guilty or you're too shameful, the Father looks at you and says, that's on you. I'm welcoming you with open arms. No hint of rejection here. No way you're going to be not my child. No way I'm not going to wrap you up and bring you home no matter where you've been or done. Doesn't matter. But how do you respond? No, no, don't throw me a party. I don't deserve a party. Father isn't worried about what you deserve or don't deserve. He's thankful you're His son. You're His daughter. Or maybe you go, yes, throw me a party. I'm so glad to be home and it's so good to be here. Yes, is that how you respond? Well, of course I get a party. I came home. That was my task to come home. And now, God, you got to bless me and fill my home with prosperity because I came home and I said a, a prayer of repentance. Some people think that's how it works. I say this prayer of repentance. God has to do all this good stuff for me because I did that prayer. It's nothing to do with you. You turned. He did not. And He won't. Sometimes... Our self-concept, when someone does a gracious act that blows our mind like this, we go, I belong. I belong in this family. I didn't really feel like I did before. I had to find out who I was and I had to leave to find out I belong. I had to find out I belong to my father. That my father truly loves me and I belong there. And I love my family. And I thought it wasn't enough. Or maybe you're skeptical. Yeah, Dad, you can put me back to work like a servant because I asked you to. You can make me a slave in your field or you can treat me like a son after all this. Are you going to hold resentments and regrets because I left and blow you money? Or are you going to treat me like I'm your son? We still don't get the shadows out of our relationship with God. And some people are manipulative, crafty in their thinking and they go like this. Well, what are the ramifications you told me this party put this ring on? What do I have to do now? <laughs> Get it? Some people think like that. What do I have to do now to keep this reward mine? It's not a reward. Nowhere in Scripture does it say salvation is a reward. It is a gift. It's a gift of God by grace through faith, not of your works, lest you should boast about it. It's a gift. People are sometimes, when they hear about grace, they become selfish or super sensitive or grateful or feel unworthy or feel guilt-ridden or failure sets in and they see themselves as imperfect, they're going to blow it again. Or maybe you feel entitled or angry. Or maybe you feel broken and unforgivable. Maybe you feel disgraced and you can't receive grace because you don't know how. Maybe you don't want any favors and you just want to just fly under the radar. Mm -hmm. 
Most of us come to this story and we forget what the youngest son's response to the father is supposed to be. His father has given him shameless grace. A grace that knows no end. A mercy that goes beyond the deepest reaches of self-concept and esteem that says, I don't belong. A grace that says, why do you keep thinking that this doesn't fit you? His son's response, if he really truly believes his father's genuine love for him, is going to be shameless love in return. I don't mean shameful. I mean shameless. I love without feeling any shame in it. We all hold back when we love. We do because there's shadows out there and other people and in this world. But with God, we don't have to hold back. He did not hold back His Son. What would make you think He's going to hold back anything from you? I'll tell you what would make you think He's going to hold something back from you. And that is how you see yourself. No other way. Some of us think, I don't need God. I don't need Jesus. But one day, when we face our final days on earth, we're going to look back and say, "Uh, I need some help. I don't know what's next. And I'm going to call on God. Wish I would have done it sooner. On the Seder plate, there's going to be parsley. And next to it, and possibly on it, I'm not sure how the plate's set up, but a little bowl of salt water. And what we'll do with that parsley is we'll dip it into that salt water and lift it up and watch the salt water drops fall off the parsley. The salt water drops remind us of the tears of the Israelites while they were in bondage in Egypt. The tears of slavery. We have been in bondage to our own self-concept because it's skewed away from how God says we are truly as people. God says, you are my chosen, my best. I reserve my son's death for you to be a part of my family as a son and as a daughter. It sounds too good to be true. That's the problem with grace. It's too good to be true because nothing else is like it. There's nowhere else in this world you'll experience anything like the grace and love of God. There's nowhere. You can't experience it but with God. And so you begin to have all these doubts and questions when you come, you know, and I don't know, God, maybe, did I say it right? Did I do it right? Did you really save me? Do I need to be baptized the second way? Or do I got to go sprinkle? Or maybe we'll be sprinkling one another. Maybe I, God, I, and we get all this self-concept, fears, and anxiety about it. And God says, it's enough that my son died for you. Amen. It's enough. Mm-hmm. You don't have to do anything but come to me and learn to Love. Amen. Like I do. With no shadow of turning <laughs> in that love. The only thing that makes you turn away from God is your own self issues and perceptions. I've got to tell you, this is really interesting. Um, in Christmas of 2017, I, I, my wife and I finally went on a cruise. I finally was willing to try it. And um, we went down to Mobile, which is where we were this, this last week. And we're getting ready to get in line through um, 
security and all these checkpoints. And the line is incredibly long. We'd met some guys from Fancy Farm of all places who were standing in line next to us. Don't know how that works. We started talking and laughing and cutting up. You probably know them. I can't remember their names anymore, so I'm not going to try. I'd probably get that totally wrong. But we're, we're in this long line, and we noticed that there's another way in, and uh, there's a guard to make sure you don't go there. And I said, what is that for? He said, that's for the diamond cruisers. And I said, what's that? And he said, those are for those who've been on cruises and been over a hundred days with this cruise line on different cruises. They earned the highest status of diamond. And I went, wow, man, that must be nice. He says, yeah, you get to bypass the whole line, get on the boat a lot quicker, you know, and, and it's like, thank you for coming back. I went, oh, okay. And then he looked at my wife and smiled and looked at me and he says, but guess what? You guys are a diamond today. He opened up the gate and said, you all come through. You're diamonds today. And the two guys from Fancy Farm are standing there and goes, you guys look like nice guys. You too. You're diamonds too. And we all passed like 700 people in line. And we went right to the front. And we got on the board of the boat really quick. First time cruiser, and I'm a diamond. <laughs> and all these other people have been on cruises before who haven't made that status. We're looking at us like, what are they doing? Like the oldest son in the store. What are they doing? Passing us up. They don't even know where they're going. They're so rookie at this. What's wrong with this picture? Mm-hmm. Never be envious of God's grace to another. Amen. Let me tell you something. Diamonds are precious because they sparkle and shine and perfect. And the most desirable ones have no impurities. And when you hold them up to the light and see them across the room, the ladies like the sparkles. (laughs) Right? Let me tell you something. Your Heavenly Father looks at you and says, you're a diamond. Mm -hmm. You're a diamond all the time. And you might think that you have some blemishes, but my son wiped those out. There is no sin in you anymore. You are clean before me. You're a diamond today. And you will be tomorrow. Now, we went on a cruise this last week and we had to go through the regular line. Mm -hmm. That guy wasn't there, and if he was, but we got on fairly quickly. But I want to share this with you. We went on as third-time cruisers. Not as diamonds, third-time cruisers. Mm -hmm. And you know what happens with those folks? You go with the crowd. Mm-hmm. And we did. And we were sitting there talking. What if that guy's going to be there and let us be diamond today? What if he's going to let us be at the front of the line again? If he's going to show us special favor because he wants to. But he wasn't there. Mm-hmm. But we still talked about it. And, and we talk about all these wonderful things in life. and Oh, if this and oh, if that. But God says, those things are yes in Jesus. You don't have to wonder about that. And what was so awesome is uh, yesterday we're coming down the gangway, going down the escalator to baggage claim. And up there at the top, 
looking over the escalator, was that guard. Mm-hmm. I remembered him. And I looked at him and said, I remember you. A year and a half ago for Christmas, you made us diamonds. And he looked at me and smiled. You remember? And he looked at me and said, I remember you. And yes, you're still diamonds. You're still precious. Amen. He hadn't forgotten. And God's not going to forget you. He will not. And here's what Dad says to the oldest son in this story. Because the oldest son represents the part of you that thinks you've got to earn it. He says, son, you may. You may find every reason to find that you don't belong here. Or that your brother doesn't belong here. Or your sister or some other person doesn't belong here. You may find reasons, but you will never make me. And you'll never find me with a reason or a need or a desire to reject my son. And you are his son and daughter. He says the same thing to you when you come home to him. I can't find any reason to reject you and I never will. And I don't desire it. And I don't need to. (laughs) That stuff's inside of us. And we got to lay that down today at the cross. Mm -hmm. Get rid of that. Because in God's eyes, you're a diamond. And shameless love is all you need to share. Did you know something's only shameless if you don't feel shame doing it? Mm -hmm. God loves without shame. He feels no darkness in it. And that's what He wants for you. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, as you showed me my responses, that son was, no, no, I, I can't, God. I didn't earn it. I don't deserve it. I kept trying to push it away and say, give it to somebody else. But you kept telling me I was your son. And you had to just push it on through against my defenses and reasonings. So I'm sure that there might be someone here today that has the same thought. I don't deserve it didn't earn it. It's not mine. I can't create it. I can't sustain it. I don't even know how it happens. And so God, this morning I'm asking if there's anyone here today that they would find peace and hope and restoration to their rightful place belonging to You. And God, if that's possible today, that there be at least one person who says, God, I'm through saying I don't belong. Then it's been worth it. Amen.